turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And prepare to stay in this book for about seven months. Ephesians is only about six chapters long, but it is going to take the greater part of the year for us to move through those six chapters because there are precious few books that have been as influential on Christianity as the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a very unique uh, letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, a lot of Paul's letters, if you go back and you look at them, had a very specific reason that Paul wrote that letter. Uh, to the Galatians, his letter was written because they had begun uh, believing in another gospel, which he said was not a gospel at all. They, they had fallen prey to the gospel of works. Uh, the church at Corinth was probably the most immoral church you have ever seen to have actually heard and understood the true gospel. And Paul was flabbergasted by the way that they could live after having heard the, the truth of the gospel. Ephesians is a little bit different. Uh, scholars cannot look at the book of Ephesians and point out any one incident that would have caused Paul to write the book of Ephesians. But if you want to understand the gospel that Paul preaches and that every other apostle agrees with vociferously, the book of Ephesians is probably one of the best places in Scripture to go to understand the gospel of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we go through the book of Ephesians, I will count this study a success if you come out of it feeling about the size of a speck in comparison to the glory, majesty, and grace of God, and your smallness makes you feel the weight and wonder of God's glory and goodness. That is what I will count as a success at the end of the book of Ephesians. Uh, one of my favorite hymns... Um, uh, starts out with the line, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. And the chorus goes, Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. That could be the theme song for this book. That Paul is going to obsessively teach on grace and I hope against hope that this will not be, uh, th this is not the first time you've heard this. The doctrine of the grace of God. Yeah, I know we, we use the D word. We use the word doctrine. The doctrine of the grace of God is simultaneously one of the most humbling and most freeing truths in all of Christianity, but without fail, whether it's me or whether it's another one of the pastors that I know and love dearly, very rarely is the doctrine of grace preached that someone does not say at the end of having heard it and processed it, I've never heard anyone tell me this before. I hope that that is not you. But if it is you, get ready. Because if you hear it, and you get it, and you let it get deep down in your head, and deep down in your heart, the grace of God will change the way you view Christianity. It will change the way you view God. It will change everything for you if you will get and process the doctrine of the grace of God. So I want us to read... Uh, the first six verses, verses of Ephesians this morning, but we are only going to be focusing on verses 3 through 6. So if you will stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. And thank you for the gift of Christ by whom we are made accepted if we will only place our faith in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I have in giant letters at the top of my notes that you will not see, highlighted in the most gaudy electric green color you could possibly imagine, in all capital letters, resist the urge to overcomplicate this. That I'm a firm believer in the Word of God. I'm a firm believer that God is very good at communicating exactly what he meant to communicate. And I'm a firm believer in our ability, particularly mine, to make things more complicated than it is sometimes. And if we're not careful, this is one of those passages that we can have the urge to overcomplicate. So I'm going to attempt, with your help, to approach this as simplistically as I can to get across the meaning of this text because God help me, actually he won't, if I try and overcomplicate this. It's a simple concept that God the Father is worthy of our blessing because he intends to bless us with salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the main point of this passage today. That salvation is all of God's grace and it is all through Jesus Christ. And he is worthy of that. I want us to see three reasons God the Father is to be blessed today. And the first is God the Father is to be blessed because he blessed us in Christ. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul uses, in this first verse, I want you to notice the first word you get blessed. A little bit farther down, who has blessed us? A little bit farther down, with every spiritual blessing. That Paul uses the Greek word for blessed a lot in this first verse. As a general Bible study principle, you can just pack this away in your toolbox uh, for later. Uh, if you take a Bible passage and you look at it and you start to notice that a term or a concept is repeated over and over and over, that is a biblical author's way of letting you know that this concept is important. And Paul's important concept in this first verse is that God is to be blessed. That first word in this verse is the word eulogetos. It is a Greek word. From You probably hear it and say, hmm, that sounds a little familiar to me. Why do I feel like I've heard the word eulogetos before? Probably because you have heard the word eulogy. Eulogy comes from this Greek word, and it means to speak well of. It does not have to happen at a funeral. Strictly in the, in the, the sense that the Greek word is used, you can eulogize someone anytime you speak well of them. Paul is using this word, eulogetos, in a way that is only ever applied to God in the New Testament. No one else in the New Testament gets this word attached to them. It is just God. And what does it mean? Blessed be. This is like the beginning of a Hebrew prayer. Even if you were to hear a Jew pray today, they would begin their prayer by saying, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. Which, that's a pretty neat way to start a prayer, I think, honestly. That's, that's, that's a neat way to start it. I prefer not to forget that he's also Father. But it's a pretty neat way to start a prayer. This is the way Paul is starting it. It's a very almost kind of Jewish start to this. Blessed be. Uh, you can hear this and you can think, worthy, bless him, glory to him. One of the pastors on my ordination council, he said, Josh, I'm going to tell you something. Don't you ever forget this. He said, do you want to know the secret to real worship? I said, of course I do, Doc. His name's Dr. Washington. We called him Doc. If you're hearing this, yes, I'm talking about you, and you can't pick on me from there either. 
But he said, Josh, I'm going to teach you the secret to true worship. If you want real worship, you need to understand that there's someone worthy. And I, he said, just let that sink in. And when you get that, you'll learn to worship. I said, okay, worthy, blessed, glory be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Paul is saying, God the Father is worthy of the glory. He is worthy of the honor. He is worthy of the blessing. Why? Well, this is not the only reason, but he's about to give us a reason. Who has blessed us? The blessed God, the God, God the Father, the God of all the universe, the one who is more blessed, more worthy of glory than anyone else in the entirety of the cosmos has decided in his goodness to bless us. With what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In layman's terms, everything and a kitchen sink. That of everything God has decided to give us in Christ, He has given us everything. And what kind of blessings are they? These are spiritual blessings. And I know this is, this is kind of a long lead up to what's going to be the meat of our, of our message this morning, but you got to get to understand that Paul is talking about reasons that God the Father is to be blessed, and he says one of them is that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The flip side of this is that God has not necessarily given us every material blessing. That doesn't mean that he can't, but he doesn't always. Can anyone ever attest to a time where it would have made, made life easier if you had gotten a giant check in your mailbox. Yeah, we can all think of a time that it would have been great if we ended up with a giant check in our mailbox. But you know what? Scripture doesn't promise us that. Scripture doesn't promise us that we are always going to be financially well off. Scripture does not promise us that we are always going to have good health. Scripture does not promise us that we're never going to get a pink slip. Scripture does not promise us that our kids are always going to obey us. Scripture does not promise us a lot of things, but what Scripture does promise us is that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If heaven has it to offer, God has given it to you, spiritually. If it is a spiritual blessing and heaven has it to offer, God has given it to you. How? Get used to hearing this, because Paul is going to say this over and over and over again. In Christ. That if there is a spiritual blessing heaven has to offer, God has given it to you, but you can only receive it if you receive it in Christ. That Christ is everything that heaven has to offer all rolled up into one divine human package. He is the conduit through which the spiritual blessings of heaven are applied to you. In other words, if you want the spiritual blessings of heaven, but you don't want Christ along with them, there is no way to do that. If you want the spiritual blessings of heaven from God, you must receive Christ. Look at Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, out of everything that could be given us, Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that God the Father had to offer. And it came with the greatest price tag. That for God to give you that gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, it cost him his son's blood on the cross. And if God has been willing to give you that, what spiritual blessing would he withhold from you? What reason would he have to hold anything back? This is like if someone were to give you a house, but you were scared to ask them, you know, for five bucks to go to McDonald's. 
I just gave you an estate. And you won't ask me for a meal? Haven't I proved to you enough that I love you? That I care about you? That I want you? God gave you the blood of his son. If, if, he, if he did not spare Jesus, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That God has given you every spiritual blessing heaven has to offer, but he has given them to you in Christ. There's no way to receive these spiritual blessings if you do not also receive Jesus. Must have Christ to receive spiritual blessings. God has blessed us. So the next time you say, God, what have you done for me lately? Jesus goes, you see them? You see the holes in my hands? Thomas, you want to put your hand in the hole in my side? You want to look at my feet where the nail was driven through? What have I done for you lately? Only died and rose from the grave, if that counts. That God has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There is no blessing that God has withheld from you in Christ. Get used to hearing that, in Christ. Church, everything we ought to do, we ought to seek to do in Christ. If we're blessed, we're blessed in Christ. If we're saved, we're saved in Christ. If we're joyful, we're joyful in Christ. If we suffer, we will suffer in Christ. Because Christ knows suffering better than any of us do. In Christ. That God has blessed us in Christ. God is worthy to be blessed. And now we get to the fun part. Verse 4, God the Father is worthy to be blessed because he chose us in Christ. The reason I said this is probably going to be the meat of our sermon is because for some reason, the doctrine of God choosing seems to be controversial today. I did not put these on your handout, but if you will, grab a pen or a pencil if you would like to, and I want to give you a list of some scripture passages that we're not going to read, but I will sum them up for you. Um, and you can note these down and go back and check them later. That in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God chose Abraham instead of anybody else. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. In Genesis 25, 23, and in Malachi 1, 2 and 3, God chose Jacob instead of Esau. In 1 Samuel 9, verses 15 and 16, and then in 1 Samuel 10, verse 1, God chose Saul as Israel's first king. In 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13, God chose David to replace Saul. In Matthew 10, verses 1 through 4, Jesus chose the twelve. In Acts 15, verse 7, Jesus chose Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. that it's very difficult to look in our Bibles and say we don't like the doctrine of God choosing and then ignore all the times that God chose. Why is the doctrine of God choosing so difficult? I want us to note that the doctrine of God choosing is one of the reasons that Paul says God is to be blessed. God is to be blessed because, verse 4, just as he chose us in him, when? Did God choose you whenever you behaved well? Did God choose you when you read your Bible every day and never missed it for 15 years? Did God choose you when you quit cussing or quit drinking? Did God choose you when you quit stealing? No. 
God chose you when? Before the foundation of the world. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything I've done. I've not earned God choosing me. I haven't done some great deed. You haven't done any great deeds. Not that would, I'm sure you've done good things in your life that are really neat that you can look back and you can say, I, I want to hang, hang my hat on that. That was a good time in my life. Good things happened there. But as good as anything any of us have ever done, nothing has been enough to merit God looking down from heaven and go, you know what? They're pretty slick. I'm going to choose that one. That God chose us before the foundation of the world, before there was any world for us to do anything in. Paul says God is to be blessed because he chose us then. And in case you had any doubt about the fact that we don't merit God's choosing, why did he choose us? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That God chose, God did not choose us because we were holy. God did not choose us because we were righteous. God did not choose us because we were good. God did not choose us because we were worthy. God chose us in order to make us good, in order to make us righteous, in order to make us worthy, in order to make us acceptable. God chose us with the intent of making us like Christ. Not because we already are. Anybody in here brave enough to say God picked me because I'm like Jesus? Hopefully not. We're not. I've said this before, but one of my closest pastor friends says, Josh, most of the time, folks don't, a lot of folks don't need you to tell them they're sinners. They already know. If they're honest with themselves, they just need to know what to do about it. Have you ever been sitting in that pew and you said, you know, Pastor, that all sounds well, that sounds good, that, there, that this is really neat, that there's a, there's a good, loving, powerful God up in heaven, but that God, he knows what I've done. He knows where I've been. He knows what I've caused. He knows what I've done. There's no way he's going to want me. There's no way he, he wants anything to do with me. If anything, this passage should tell you that, that God's choosing of a person has nothing to do with where they've been, how good they are, how righteous they are or not, what they've done. I mean, for goodness gracious, the man writing the letter was a professional murderer. It was Paul. He had letters from the high priest to hunt down Christians and kill them. Spoiler alert, come back the night. We're talking about that. We're talking about God calling Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Right at, literally saved him straight off the trail to go round up some Christians to throw in prison and kill in Damascus. And when he gets to Damascus, he gets saved and turned around and becomes an apostle. Why? Because God didn't pick him because of what he'd done. God picked him because of what he was going to make him. chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Now, this is the word that I have seen more churches fight over. I have seen more churches split over. I have seen uh, folks almost degenerate to fist fight level over whether or not this word needs to be used. Well, first off, don't take it up with the pastor. Take it up with Paul. He used it, not me. It's just our task to figure out what exactly did God mean when through the Holy Spirit he inspired the Apostle Paul to write this down. Having predestined us, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. This word for predestined is used six times in the New Testament. The first time it's used, it's used in Acts 4, verse 28. 
and it's regarding the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. I'll actually go there um, since we're making good time, and I'll, I'll read it so that you can see it. Acts chapter 4, verse 28. This is not on your handout. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, this is verse 27, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Determined before. This is regarding the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. Would we all agree that God had planned the slaying of the Lamb before the foundation of the world? Yes, that before God said, let there be light, before Genesis 1-1, it was just as certain that there would be a hill called Calvary, that on that hill there would be a cross, and on that cross there would hang a Messiah named Jesus of Nazareth. It was just as certain in that moment before God said, let there be light as it was when it was occurring, that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. And Acts 4.28 that tells us that God had destined those events to occur before as yet the world existed. Determined before regarding the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. 1 Corinthians 2.7 1 Corinthians 2, 7, the, the word is translated ordained before the ages, and it is regarding the message of the gospel. That long before even the Jews of the New Testament who had come to Christ realized it, the gospel message that eventually the Gentiles would come to know Jesus as well, that's us, that's you and me. That message has been there from the very beginning. The message of redemption and salvation from sin through the, the, the spilt blood of a perfect qualified redeemer. We just preached through Ruth. Hopefully we saw through, that, through the preaching through of that book that, again, this is not a book of several different stories. This is the book of one story that is told over and over and over. It is the message of God's mission to glorify himself and the redemption of mankind. This is God's self-revelation. And from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation, this is a message of redemptive history, how God was saving us. The gospel is there from the very beginning. You don't believe it? What, what happened whenever Adam and Eve sinned? Go back to whenever God cast them out of the garden. What did he do? He slayed an animal and clothed them with the tunic. Immediately after the first sin, there was blood spilled. Immediately. We've already got a substitute given in Genesis 1-1. You see this in the substitute of a lamb given for Isaac on Mount Moriah when Abraham is called to sacrifice his son. You see this in uh, the, the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, stepping in to redeem Ruth when all else has been lost. You see this when David, a descendant of Ruth, steps out and goes, who's this giant? He's out here talking about, talking about God. You going to let him do that? David, you've lost your mind. No, you let me go out there and stand on behalf of Israel because I'm going to stand out here knowing that, that the God of Israel is going to give me victory over this unbeatable enemy. Hmm. You've got one person standing up on behalf of a helpless people who can't do anything themselves to defeat an undefeatable foe on their behalf and bring them freedom. Am I talking about David or am I talking about Jesus? All of the above. It's one story told over and over and over again. That the gospel is told throughout Scripture from the beginning all the way to the end. And 1 Corinthians 2, 7 says that it was ordained before the ages. Romans 8, 29 says that God predestined the elect to be conformed to the image of Christ. That it has always been God's plan to call out a people for himself and to make those people look like Jesus. 
that this was God's plan from the get-go. Do you know that it has been God's plan since before creation to take you and conform you to the image of His Son? Before you breathed your first breath, before you were thought of, before your parents were thought of, before they were thought of, do you know that Scripture says God predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ? That that was in His plan. Romans 8.30, and those he predestined are also those he called. Those he called are also those he justified. And those he justified are also those he glorified. What does that mean? That the ones that he purposed to make look like Jesus, he called them to himself. And when he called them to himself, he justified them. And when he justified them, he glorified them in Christ. That this has been God's plan from the get-go. He is to be blessed because of that, because of Paul. Now, the doctrine of election by God is just flat out there, Stapleton. It's just right there. Question is, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do with it? I can't tell you the number of times I've had people tell me, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right that God would choose well, if, if we don't like it, we've got to do Thomas Jefferson. Did you ever study Thomas Jefferson in history class? Thomas Jefferson was famous because he'd, he'd take his Bible, and he, he would the, the parts that didn't make sense to him, that he didn't think were logical, he actually took a pair of scissors and cut out. And we got to the end of it, he's like, ah, this is a Bible that I, that I, can, go, I can get along with. Well, the problem is, at that point, it's not the Bible. You, you cut the Word of God out because you didn't like the part... Lord, if we cut the parts of the Bible out that hurt us and that made us uncomfortable, I would have two pretty pieces of leather and this little, this little strap right there. You ever been cut by your Bible? Do you ever bleed after your Bible study because it just got down there and it's sharp? You ever have it kind of poke you? Where you ever have the Holy Spirit go, hey, that's you, hey, that's you? I'm talking to you. I'm pointing this out in you, and you go, this hurts. The truth of the matter is that the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of election is in Scripture. It is shown in Scripture over and over and over and over again. Why is this doctrine such a struggle for some people? In one word, I can sum it up. Pride. Pride. The doctrine of saying, I was dead in my sin, not sick, not drowning. One of my favorite Christian musicians puts it this way, he says, we, we like to think of ourselves as in the ocean, helplessly flailing, we're drowning, and then Jesus comes along and he reaches down, and, and, and we accept his offer, and we reach up. And we both reach toward each other, and Jesus pulls us over. The only problem is, Scripture doesn't say we're drowning. Scripture says we're dead. We're dead in sin. When is the last time you spoke to a dead person and they spoke back? When is the last time you reached out to a dead person and they reached back? When is the last time you built a relationship with a dead person and became friends with them? You haven't, because dead people are unresponsive. The only way for a dead person to respond is to no longer be a dead person. Resurrection has to occur. Regeneration has to occur. Praise God, we have a God who's in the business of resurrection. It is absolutely absurd to me what has been done with the doctrine of election in the church these days, and I will stand unashamedly up and say it. If you want to look at any of the passages that I've listed that showed God choosing today, the way the Bible presents it is glorious. It's magnificent. It's a reason God is to be blessed. It's a reason God is to be worshipped. It's a reason God is to be glorified. And we're over here arguing about, not, not this church specifically, but the church as a whole, we argue about whether or not we think it is fair for God to do what he wants with his creation. 
If you want to see an attack on the church by Satan, look no further than this. The total witness of Scripture is that God's choosing of a people for himself is a show of his goodness, grace, and love, and somehow or another we're fighting over whether or not that God should choose based on what we think is fair. Stop asking why God doesn't choose everybody and start asking why God chose anybody, and then you'll see election in the light that Scripture paints it. I'll say that again. Stop asking why God doesn't choose everybody and start asking why God chose anybody, and then you'll see election in the light Scripture paints it in. Because here's the reality that Paul is using to set up our understanding of God's glorious grace. That every single one of us are dead in our sins apart from Jesus Christ. Not sick, not hobbled, not maimed, not confused, dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead. Unresponsive. And what does God do? God reaches down quickens us, gives us the ability to respond to the gospel, and saves us all by His grace. But Josh, don't I have to work hard? No. Josh, but what about me? What do I do? No. What about I haven't done enough? No. It is by grace and grace alone. Anything else feeds our pride that I've done this, I've done this, I've done that, I've gone there, I've served here. No! You were dead in your sins and trespasses, and when that day, whenever that, go back to this day in your mind. Remember that day? If you're, if you're a Christian, you've got this day somewhere. If you were young, you may not remember it exactly. But there was a day when you heard the gospel. You heard the message that you were dead in your sins. You heard the message that you were lost. You heard the message that apart from Jesus Christ, you would die and you would bust hell wide open. And maybe that day, for some reason, maybe when it happened before, that message clicked in your head and in your heart. And you said, you know what? That's the truth. I am a sinner. I am lost. I do need to be saved. I do need to be forgiven. And whether it was there in that church or whether it was at the front of the aisle or whether it was on the floor of your kitchen where you were down on your knees, you dropped there and you hit, you hit the floor and you said, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you know why you did that? God's grace who gave a dead unregenerate sinner the ability to comprehend spiritual truth that you could not comprehend on your own. That's the way it happens with anybody who comes to God. God is worthy of blessing because he totally, graciously, of his own free will and apart from any merit on our part, chose to give us eternal life in Christ. Meditate on the glorious grace of God. And if you want to hear from the lips of Jesus himself, listen to John 6. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless they try really, really hard to. Is that what Jesus said? John 6, 44? No. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. John, John 15, 6. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 17, the second half of verse 1 into verse 2. Glorify your son. This is Jesus praying to his father. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you, has give, as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. 
What is the application? What do we do with this? Christian, I'll give you two applications, and then lost person sitting in here, I'll give you one application. Christian, here are two applications for you. One, this should cause you to... Uh, Preston ought never have to work to get anybody to sing a hymn again. Because when you understand that you are totally and completely helpless, that you are spiritually dead and you could not know God unless unless he drew you to himself, that should make you just want to jump up and down and scream and go, my God, I was going to go to hell. I was going to be lost forever. I was never going to have a relationship with my Redeemer. But he reached down and he saved me. He brought me back from the dead. He forgave my sin and I brought nothing to the table. He did it all just because he's good. Not because I earned it. Jesus said in Matthew, there's going to be plenty on that last day that said, but didn't I do this and this and this and this and this and this? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with the fact that you are a dead, unregenerate, unrepentant sinner. And God said, I'm going to save him. I'm going to save her. That should make you want to sing. That should should breathe life into your faith that you have a God who loves you enough to reach down and save you out of your sin. And then second, here's another application for you. Are you ever share, or are you ever scared of sharing the gospel? I'm, I'm, what if I'm not persuasive enough? What if I'm not smart enough? What if I don't have all the right arguments? You want to know why somebody gets saved? It's not because you're persuasive. It's not because you, you got a nice, clean-pressed suit or you've got your rehearsed, blue eternal life track or because you've got your your plan that you practice and you you got your four spiritual laws and you got your Romans road marked up bible and you practice this three or four times in front of the mirror you're pretty sure if you lost and you'd given your gospel presentation to yourself you'd got saved it's not because you got any of that the reason christian that you can have confidence sharing the gospel is that the power has never been in you anyway The power is in the message of the gospel. And when you preach it, when you teach it, when you share that gospel, folks get saved the same way you did. They hear the word of God, and God moves in their heart and draws them, and it has nothing to do with how persuasive you are. It has everything to do with how good and gracious God is. So when you go out and you share the gospel, this happened to me this week, I'll be honest. I'll go ahead and tell you that I, I, I had shared the gospel with somebody and felt good when I left. But then some stuff happened and a couple days later I started ruminating on it. I said, did I do enough? Was I clear enough? Did I say enough? Did I... Did I, did I give enough instruction that this person would, would, would know how to, how to trust Christ? And, I, and, and my, my, my dear beloved wife looked at me. She said, honey, who's God? It's not about you. Did you share the gospel? I said, yes. She said, then you've done everything God told you to do. He can handle the rest. Wisdom. Christian, that should that should embolden you in sharing your faith. That should make you share your faith more. But all God's called me to do is to just reach my hand in this gospel seed pouch and fling it everywhere I can, as often as I can. He'll take care of the growth. He'll take care of it taking root. That should encourage you in sharing the gospel. That should increase your gospel sharing to know that God is the one who brings the growth. And then finally, a non-Christian, unbeliever in here who's hearing this, 
Well, did God choose me? Here's my question. Are you hearing the gospel right now? Is there anything that is stopping you from bowing your head right now and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner? Jesus Christ, I believe that what you did on the cross is enough for me. I repent of my sins, and I'll follow you the rest of my days. Is there anything stopping you from doing that right now? I can go ahead and tell you, no. Other than your refusal, if you refuse, there's nothing stopping you. The fact that you can hear and understand and appropriate the gospel is evidence by itself of God's grace in your life. When you hear the gospel, respond to it. There's no reason you can't. Come to Jesus right now. If, you're a, if you are lost today, that is your application. Come to Jesus. Don't even wait for me to finish my sermon. Just bow your head right now. Give your life to Christ right now. We'll talk about it later. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait. If I waited 30 seconds from now and said, don't wait again, you don't know between now and that 30 seconds whether or not you're going to have a massive heart attack. You don't know. Don't wait. There is nothing preventing you from coming to Christ right now other than your own refusal to do so if you hear the gospel. And find yourself chosen in Christ. Accept the gospel. That God is worthy of ble to be blessed because he blessed us in Christ, because he chose us in Christ. And then finally, God is worthy to be blessed because he has made us accepted in Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. This probably this, I got two definitions for grace here. Grace is one of those Christianese words, words that we use around church that we've been using all our life, but maybe nobody ever explained to us what the word actually means. Usually goes along with words like sanctification. Oh, I am saved, and I am sanctified, and I am justified, and I don't know what any of these words mean, but they sound holy, so I say them. Christianese. Um, grace is one of these words. This is F.F. F. Bruce. He defines grace as God's eternal and unconditioned goodwill, which found decisive expression in time in the saving work of Christ. Layman's terms, if you want to see what God's grace looks like, you look at Calvary. That there was nothing that we did, there was nothing that we merited that, that meant we deserved to be saved. But God gave us Jesus on Calvary. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E, grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor of God expressed chiefly in the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus. Why did God make us accepted? To the praise of the glory of his grace. To be gracious. God was good. Why? To be good because he's God and God is good. I'm going to risk it and try it. If I were to say God is good, you would say all the time. And if I were to say God all the time, you would say God is good. There we go. Do you know that there are very few theological statements that are as accurate as that? That God is good. Why? Because he's God. And God is good all the time. It's accurate. God is gracious. Why? Because he's God and God's gracious. He wants to be. By which he made us accepted in the beloved. By grace he made us accepted in the beloved in Christ. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. I explained it this way to a youth on Wednesday night. The wages of sin is death. Any of us who have ever worked a job that you have hourly wages. I used to work at a hardware store and we worked hourly wages and 
Uh, you go in at the beginning of the day. This is probably familiar for a lot of you. You take your time card. You stick it in the, the, the clock. You stick it in the puncher. And then you take it and you, you leave it in the slot. And at the end of the day, when you leave, you pull your card out. You punch your time card one more time. And at the end of the day, it's totaled up how many hours you worked. And then at the end of the pay period, they take your time card and they type in the number of hours you work and they multiply it by the amount that you make per hour. That's your wages. And they pay you for the time that you work. Not a penny more, not a penny less. Well, until taxes. <laughs> I heard an amen. <laughs> they pay you for the amount of time you work. You get the money in return for the work you did. So when Paul says the wages of sin is death, it is like when you entered planet Earth. Psalm says we were conceived in sin. So the minute that little baby is conceived, it's like you punch a time clock. And what are you at work doing? Sinning. You are at work sinning. Not consciously, as a baby, obviously, but you're conceived and said that you've got a sin nature in you. You are dead in your sins. And that time clock is just a running while you're on earth. And you are building up that, that sin. You are building up that wrath. Scripture calls it storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And one day, when, if you don't know Christ, when you punch your time card out, you get paid for the hours that you worked. And the wages of sin is death. That's what that means. But what's the second half of that verse say? But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. If you ever got to punch a time card for a present, that's a pretty lousy present. It's a gift. It's grace. It's God's goodness. I'm going to stand up here, and Preston's going to lead us in a verse or two. I want you to consider, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, that God is extending to you the opportunity to be one of the chosen in Christ. There is no reason you cannot trust Jesus right now, today. It's not a suggestion from God. It's a command to repent and believe. Come up here, talk with me. I'll be glad to talk with you about it. Fill, up your, fill out your guest card on your bulletin. I'll follow up with you. Meet me at the back door, but do not leave here today refusing the grace of Christ. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for a chance for us to be together and study your word, Lord, and to see your grace, um, to learn about your grace, to, to learn about your goodness, your sovereign goodness. Lord, that I'm thankful um, for, for how good you are to us. I'm thankful for how good you've been to this church. And I pray if there's anybody in here today who does not know you, who does not know your grace, Lord, that you would call out to them and you would save them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.